Revelation 15. Then I saw another sign in heaven, great and amazing, seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last, for with them the wrath of God is finished. And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire, and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. And they sing the song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb, saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. After this, I looked, and the sanctuary of the tent of witnesses in heaven was opened, and out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure, bright linen, with the golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God, who lives forever and ever. And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power, and no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the angels, seven angels were finished. So we're diving back into the book of Revelation. Uh, we're kind of in the home stretch now with Revelation. Things are going to start to wind down in the coming weeks. We're actually going to close this series in the first week of July. Uh, hopefully, you've seen by now how the book of Revelation is like surprisingly one of the most helpful and practical books for us uh, in, in the here and now about what it looks like to follow Jesus faithfully. Right? In the midst of suffering, in our longing for hope, in just being faithful when things get hard, like the book of Revelation has been immensely helpful to us, surprisingly helpful. And I say surprisingly because Revelation has a lot of weird stuff in it, right? It's got the numbers and symbols and imagery that often gets misunderstood. But what we have seen, hopefully what you have seen, is that instead, when you actually dig deep down into the passage, when you start to get some help from the Old Testament to understand these images better, it becomes immensely helpful and really practical for us. We're closing uh, the cycles of seven that we started seeing uh, back in like Revelation uh, 5 and 6, uh, where uh, in, in the beginning you saw the seven seals that were broken, and then you got the seven trumpets, and now we're going to look at the seven bowls of wrath. If you're confused or joining us in the middle of this series, and you're like, I have no idea what you're talking about, don't worry, it'll start to make sense, hopefully, right? Like when, by the time that our time is over together, uh, but... What we've talked about is when you see the cycle of sevens of God's judgment, of his pleading to the people of the world to come to him and turn to him in repentance, what is happening is John is not describing in this vision with all the images and all that, he's not describing three different eras that, that happen one after the other. It's not that the seals happen and then the trumpets and then the bowls, but it's more like these different windows looking in at the same scene. And so the order of these is not historical in the order that they happen, but rather they're just, it just happens to be the order that John sees them in, right? It's like kind of like when Star Wars came out, uh, you know, like, most of us, we saw episodes four through six before we saw episodes one through three, right? Because four through six, the original trilogy came out, and then later on, we saw the prequels, right? And just because they are given to us later on doesn't mean that they happened later on. They actually came, happened earlier, 
right? Or like in the movie Encanto, which I'm sure most of us have seen by now. I know we're not supposed to talk about him, but when Bruno sees the vision, when he sees the vision, he's confused about how to interpret this vision at first because he says, it's all out of order. I don't know what to do with it, right? And so the book of Revelation is, is, is kind of like that. Right? Like it doesn't go in sequential chronological order, but it gives us different pictures of the same event, the same span of time, which goes from the time that Jesus ascended on high, returned back to heaven after his resurrection, all the way up until now and the time that he returns. And what we see is that through these judgments, the trumpets and the bowls and, and the seals and stuff. And through, through these, what God is doing right now is he's beckoning. He's calling us to himself and telling us that one day a final judgment is going to come. And so these seven bold judgments we're looking at aren't happening later in the timeline what, than what we've already gone through, but it's more just like a repeat of what we've already seen. But what's happening is we're going to expand now on what's already been said before. One clue is the obvious reference at the end of each of the seven cycles, how it all ends on a final day of judgment, right? You can't have a final day of judgment, and then another final day of judgment, and another final day of judgment. It's just, it's just the final day, right? And so the bowls here are uh, a repeat of what we've done before, but we're going to see more, uh, more detail than some, some of the earlier visions of wrath that we've seen. Now, on the topic of God's wrath and the topic of God's judgments, I know, I know that the judgment of God, the reality of his holy wrath is not an easy concept to work with, right? I think it's important that we're honest about that. I know it's not an easy concept to work with, but what I hope you'll see is that it's good news for those who have the ears to hear because it tells us, it tells us about God's character. It tells us about how much he cares about justice, about how he judges perfectly, about how he keeps and rescues his people to the very end. And look, that is a message that the early Christians needed to hear because they were suffering. They were going through hard times. They were being persecuted. That's a message they needed to hear. And that's a message that we need to hear, that evil, sin, and death will not have the final say. And so we're going to look at two chapters. We read chapter 15 uh, in the scripture reading, but we're going to fly through and look at 15 and 16. Uh, excuse me, puberty. Um, <laughs> So chapter 15 and 16, because they, they fit together, all right? So let's just go through it quickly. Uh, point number one, we're going to unpack the Song of Moses. The Song of Mo Moses. Uh, uh, read verse one with me. John is describing his vision. He says, then I saw another sign in heaven. It was great and amazing. Seven angels with seven plagues, which are the last. For with them, the wrath of God is finished. And so we have this turning point here, right? The next few chapters are going to be really the last word on God's judgment. And then he says in verse 2, And I saw what appeared to be a sea of glass mingled with fire and also those who had conquered the beast and its image and the number of its name, uh, which is the number 666, as we've seen earlier. And he says, They're standing beside the sea of glass with harps of God in their hands. So here we see God's people. We see the people of God, they're described as those who have conquered the beast, its image, and its number, which reminds us of a previous chapter, 
that we read on the final judgment of God. Right? As a quick refresher, the beast's number, the mark of the beast, what is commonly known as 666, uh, uh, that number, the number of the Antichrist, uh, is, is not, uh, he's not a single person. All right? Like, so the, the beast that is referred to in Revelation is not a single person, is not the vaccine, is not a mark of the beast. Uh, no, we're not going to all get barcodes tattooed on our foreheads, you know, with this, this, like, that's the mark of the beast. No, that kind of nonsense is the sort of stuff that's carried over from uh, just wonky Roman Catholic theology um, or, thank you, or uh, dispensational uh, misunderstandings of Revelation. And look, the, the Antichrist as we've already seen, is actually a demonic beast. He's a great demonic force that works through individuals throughout history in order to deceive people and lead them away from hope in Christ. And the reason his number is 666 is because it's just one short of the number 7, which is a numeric number in Revelation for completeness, and for perfection, which is why you have seven angels, why you have letters to seven churches, why you have seven seals and trumpets and bowls of wrath. Like the number seven is the number in the Bible for completeness. And also when things come in threes, that's another number of completeness. And so to say that this demonic beast number is 666 is John's, whoa, it just keeps coming, right? Um, to say that the beast's number is 666 is John's sort of clever way of, of, uh, of saying that uh, this demonic beast is completely incomplete, right? He tries to mimic God. He tries to get people to follow him and worship him the way that God does, but, but he, he just leads us empty-handed in the end. So it's like John's way of throwing apostolic shade on this demonic beast, which is, I think, pretty rad, and also shows a sort of uh, fearless bravery of uh, Apostle John, uh, if, you, if you ask me. So here, here uh, in this passage, John says he sees all of those who conquered that beast and its image and its number. In other words, he's saying while the demonic beast is using deception to try and get people away from Christ and living for things other than Christ, those who truly belong to Christ and truly follow him to the end, they will have in one sense conquered the beast. He's talking, he's talking about Christians throughout the ages. He's talking about the church. And so, and so when John says he sees those who have conquered the beast and its image and its number, he's basically saying those who followed Christ to the end, I'm seeing a vision of them. I'm seeing a vision of them. And he pictures them next to the sea, he says, of glass and fire. Now, what does that mean? It's helpful for us to know that throughout the Old Testament, the sea, the ocean, the sea is always an image for danger and chaos because of how unpredictable the sea is. I mean, think about it. Like this was this was before um, you had like meteorologists that, that could that could just kind of try and size up the weather patterns and, and things like that. That's a meteorologist, right? Did I get that right? Okay, thank you. Uh, so so before they had all that, all right? Like I mean, the sea was wildly unpredictable. And when you're out at sea, 
Back then with no radar, no compass, no satellite, GPS, you're at the complete mercy of the sea. When people thought about the sea back then, it would stir up feelings of terror and fear. But here, the sea is described as a sea of glass, which is a way of, which is a way of saying that it's, it's peaceful. It's not tumultuous. It's not scary, but it's peaceful. And when the sea is like glass, it's calm. It's predictable. You've got smooth sailing. And that is what God's people experience on the other side of his restoration. That is what God's people experience on the other side of him making all things new. And there's also fire. He says it's a sea of, of glass mixed with fire. Now, what's the significance of fire? It's because this peace that he envisions is a peace that has gone through refining fire. It's like the process of that, that, that gold goes through when it gets refined. Once it, once it goes through the fire, it becomes precious and pure and beautiful. This is John's way of, of describing the unique role that suffering plays in the life of a Christian. See, the Bible tells us in, in Romans 3 and Philippians 3 and a number of other places that, that when Christians are met with aspects of our world that are falling, fallen and that are broken, when we're met with, with suffering, God, God uses that. He uses our trials and he uses our adversity to strengthen us, to refine us. And, and, and even if it's so hard to understand and grasp in the moment, like we become better for it. Rather than tearing us down, which is the enemy's goal in our suffering, it actually fortifies us and makes us more whole. Our sufferings actually make us more like Christ, the Bible says. And those are two key marks of a faithful follower of Jesus, according to this passage, that on the one hand, you endure through the deception and lies of the enemy by being faithful to Christ to the end. And on the other hand, too, you're also sanctified by your suffering like a refining fire. And then as the passage continues, it says the people of God, they start to break out in song. In verses 3 through 4, when it says that they sing the song of Moses is what it's called. The song of Moses, the servant of God, and the song of the Lamb saying, Great and amazing are your deeds, O Lord God the Almighty. Just and true are your ways, O King of the nations. Who will not fear, O Lord, and glorify your name? For you alone are holy. All nations will come and worship you, for your righteous acts have been revealed. This is called the Song of Moses because it echoes the Song of Deliverance that uh, we read about in the Exodus story when Moses leads the Israelites out of Egyptian slavery. You guys are familiar with that story? All right? So like in, in that story, you know that when Moses led God's people out from Egyptian slavery, you've got this, this famous scene where they, they come up to the Red Sea and they're like, oh no, now what? Right? And then... And then out of just a miraculous action of God, like Moses puts his staff at the edge of the sea and then it parts. 
And then they're like, let's go, right? And so they start running across uh, the bank. They're just the bottom of, of the Red Sea. Uh, and, once they, and, and then like uh, Pharaoh's army starts, starts trying to close in on them from behind. It's like this intense scene. And as soon as God's people make it out on the other side and Pharaoh's army is, is still uh, in, uh, like in between the two parts of the Red Sea as they're lifted up, it caves in on them. They get to the other side. God's people get to the other side, but then the waters collapse on their enemies. And shortly after that, the people, they just begin to sing. They just begin to worship God. They're like, oh, my God, that was crazy. That, God just did that. He led us out of Egypt. He delivered us. He destroyed our enemies in the process. And so the people begin to sing that God is the one who frees us. God is the one who delivers us. They sing God saved us. He delivered us from slavery, from bondage, from evil, from our enemies. And in a similar manner, those who place their faith in Christ have also been delivered from a type of slavery, from a type of bondage to sin, and are delivered from, our, our, from evil and from our enemy, the devil. And so there is coming a day when we will be, all of God's people will be in a sea of glass, and we will sing. We will sing this song because of our deliverance. We will sing, great and amazing are your deeds, God. You are holy. Who will not fear and glorify your name? In other words, who will not ascribe the glory that is due to your name? I think we can say that this isn't just the song of Moses, but it, it's also, in a very real sense, the song of the Lamb of God. The song of the lamb is not just that there's an enemy out there hounding us, coming after us. But the song of the lamb tells us that there's also an enemy in here. There's sin in here. And Christ the lamb was, was crushed for me. He experienced judgment for me. That's the greater deliverance. You see, there's this idea that floats around in some church circles. There's this idea that the world is so evil that God will have to judge it. But then we ignore the sin in our own hearts that was so evil that it took the death of the Son of God to deliver us from judgment. But man, that's, that's the center of the Christian message. That's the center of the Christian message. It's the, that's the good news that we rehearse, the good news that we sing and celebrate. Christians, of all people, should be more concerned about the sin in our own hearts than about the sins of our neighbors. It took the death of the Son of God to pay for our sins. We know that. We know that. We should be the most humble of all. We should be the most gracious of all, and yet we're so loved. Even though it took the death of the Son to pay for our sins, we're so loved that the Father gave his Son for us. And that, this picture... This picture of worship on the sea of glass mingled with fire is where we're headed, that we're free, we're delivered, and we're singing, which leads us now to the seven bowls of wrath. Read verses five through eight with me. John says, after this, after this vision, I looked and the sanctuary of the tent of witness in heaven was opened. And out of the sanctuary came the seven angels with the seven plagues, clothed in pure bright linen, with golden sashes around their chests. And one of the four living creatures gave to the seven angels seven golden bowls full of the wrath of God who lives forever and ever. 
And the sanctuary was filled with smoke from the glory of God and from his power. And no one could enter the sanctuary until the seven plagues of the seven angels were finished. Now, let me draw your attention to just a couple things here. First, the angels are described as coming out of what's described as the sanctuary of the tent of witness. Now, the tent of witness in other places in the Bible, it's called the tabernacle of witness, uh, was this place in the Old Testament where uh, the stone tablets that had the Ten Commandments etched on them were, were kept. And so the fact that the pouring out of these bowls of wrath come from here tells us that God's wrath is just the natural flow of violating God's moral law, violating the Ten Commandments, which is summed up in love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. This is a reminder that God's law is not a list of arbitrary rules that he made up for us just because, all right? No, the Ten Commandments are like an exposition of how God created us to be. And when we violate the moral law, we violate not just God's moral law, but we also violate ourselves. We violate how we were made to be. We go against the reality that we were made for. We're actually destroying ourselves. My five-year-old son, Haddon, is, is known for being shy and timid, right? Like, if you know him, you know he's got a lot of heart, but he's generally, like, more reserved in social situations, uh, kind of like how his dad can be, all right? But one day, one day, uh, he was playing with uh, a group of his friends, and uh, all, all, all the dads, we were just kind of hanging out as, as the boys were, were playing in the next room, room over, and uh, he was playing with these friends. My son had him, was playing with these friends, and then one of those friends started picking on two of the other friends. You know, and the kids were, the kids were getting their feelings hurt by that. They started to get aggressive. Uh, the, the one started to get aggressive with the others, and they started getting aggressive back, back and then uh, Haddon, like, stood up in the middle, and he goes like this, and he goes, no. <laughs> He's like, stop that. You leave them alone, and, and you be nice, right? And all the dads, like, we're in the other room. They hear him. They all look over like, whoa, where, that came from Haddon? Like, where did that come from? It was a proud moment for me because, man, I've tried to teach him from, like, day one that Christians, especially Christian men more than anyone, need to stand up for those who are oppressed, for those who are being silenced, that we use our power not to dominate others, but to stick up for others and love others well. That's true masculinity. And we say that in our home, that's what boys do because that's what God calls boys to do. And to not do that would be to go against how he was raised, or to go against the values of our home, to go against and be a, to be a violation of our name. And in the same way, to go against God's moral law is to go against the way that we were designed, to go against the values of God's kingdom. It's a violation of being made in his image. And in the Old Testament, the sanctuary of the tent of witness was also called the tent of meeting. 
Because that's where people met with the living God. God's presence and glory would be seen resting over that place. Sometimes it was a pillar of cloud. Sometimes it was a pillar of fire. It's the place where God's true character, where his nature, his perfect holiness, his burning zeal for all that is right, plus his perfect hatred for all that is wrong and evil, was experienced and revealed in this place. And so what does that tell us? It tells us that the bowls of wrath coming out of this place in John's vision, the bowls of wrath are just a natural reflex of God's perfect holiness. We shouldn't, we shouldn't try to see it as anything else other than that. It's the perfect reflex of God's holiness. In other words, they're the most logical response. God's wrath is his most logical response to evil and impurity in our world. I think that's an important point to make because I think when some, some people think of God's wrath and think of God's judgment, they have this, this picture of like this angry toddler God who just can't control his temper. He easily gets, gets angered. Or they picture God like almost like an untamed animal just thrashing about, right? But you, don't, you can only get that picture. You can only get those pictures if you have a, a small view of God and a small view of his holiness. His wrath is not an attribute of his. It's an overview, overflow of his attribute of his perfect justice and holiness. This is why the angels come out of the sanctuary. When they come out, they're described with images of brilliant radiance and purity. T.F. Torrance says it this way. He says, the wrath which the angels are about to pour out upon the earth is a pure and sinless wrath priestly in its function and golden in its integrity. No bestial passion, no spite, no hate, no anger of sin at all in it. It's an unsinful wrath. You can only get there, you can only sit right with that if you have a high view of God. I mean, we, we fight for that in this church because that's what the scriptures tell us. That's the scriptures they paint for us of God, that we, we need a high view of God. We'll never abandon that, a high view of God. But we also will never abandon a humble view of man. We don't want to think more of ourselves than, uh, than we ought to. We don't just need a high view of God and a humble view of man, but we also need a hopefulness and a joy in the grace and mercy of God. And then things start to shift. You saw at the beginning of chapter 16, which shows us the bowls of wrath. And if you look at the bowls of wrath, you'll notice that they're also taken straight out of the Exodus story too. They mimic or echo uh, the, the plagues uh, that came upon Egypt uh, when Moses was trying to warn Pharaoh of what would happen to, to him and his people if, 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 if he didn't let his people go. And we need to acknowledge that we need to acknowledge that connection with the Exodus story because the point of the plagues in the Exodus story were to get the Egyptians to repent from slaveholding, to humble Pharaoh's heart so that he would let the people go. And so, and so the point for us with, with passages like this in Revelation is not to worry ourselves with, when is this going to happen? No, the point is to show us how much we desperately need God's grace, how much we desperately need his mercy, 
how much we desperately need to turn from our old ways and turn back to a holy God. You see, when suffering comes, some people, they start to ask things like, like, man, I don't know what I did to deserve this. I don't know what I did to deserve this. And underneath that, I think, is an assumption that isn't quite biblical. It's an assumption that suffering is happens to us as a judgment for our sin, kind of like a small hell that God puts us in to torment us, to get us in line. Like God is up there fidgeting on, on a cloud with a bunch of lightning bolts in his hands, just like looking for someone to zap. Well, no, the Bible says it's a little bit more complex than that. Like God, the Bible gives a spectrum of why we suffer. You see guys like Abraham, David, Jesus, they all suffered for very different reasons. It doesn't always mean that it's because you're sinful. It doesn't mean final judgment. In fact, the first five of the seven bowls aren't, aren't judgment against sin, but they're a means of keeping us to experience, from keeping the final judgment. He, ta- he talks about them like warnings to get us to keep repenting, to soften our hearts. Let me give you an example from the Gospels. Like in the Gospel of Luke, chapter 13, Pilate, he, he had some Galileans murdered for the way that they were worshiping. And then when there's this other incident where this Tower of Shalom like falls down and 18 people were killed. And people come up to Jesus and they're sort of goading him and they're like, hey, like teacher, tell us what they did wrong. What was their sin, right? What, what was their heinous sin that got them killed by Pilate or that got them crushed by that tower? It was re- really just reflecting this popular view at the time that tragedies and disease and all kinds of bad things, they only happen to you because of your own personal sin. But Jesus says, no, that's not the right question. He says, do you think they're worse sinners than you? No, you, you're all sinners. He says, but unless you repent you too are going to perish just like them. You got to love how subversive Jesus is with that, right? Like it's so unexpected. The religious people are like, hey, let's talk about the the sins of the people over there. And Jesus is like, well, how about you hold up a mirror and do a little bit of self-reflection instead? Are there things that you're clinging to other than Christ? Have you grown distant from God, the God that you claim to know and worship? Has your heart hardened to the things of God? Are you spiritually asleep? I mean, that's why in in, in Revelation 16, verse 6, uh, in this vision, he uses this graphic imagery of drinking blood. It's a way of saying, man, you got to internalize your guilt. He wants us to digest the depths of our sin, to get us to the point of seeing Man, I have no other hope other than Jesus. I have nowhere else to go other than Jesus. To remove all options of salvation other than just clinging to him. To say, look, I've got nowhere else, nothing else to do except just to turn to him. And like Pharaoh, if I keep going this way, it's just going to end up destroying me. Now, we don't have time to get into the seven bowls of wrath individually. Um, I don't think we really need to because we kind of looked at these judgments in a previous chapter uh, that also kind of echoed the plagues of Egypt. But I do want to point your attention to a couple things. One is that the, the final destruction, the final destruction in the bowls of wrath doesn't come into the last two bowls. And that's significant because like I mentioned before, the first five 
are meant to get people to repent and turn to Christ. You see God's mercy in that, right? I mean, what, what do we deserve from a holy God other than to just be utterly destroyed before him? And yet he pleads with us through one bowl of wrath comes out. He says, come on, turn, turn to me. The next comes out. The next comes out. It happens five times throughout the ages, right? Showing us that God is relentless in his mercy. He's persistent and patient and long-suffering. And in verse 11 of Revelation 16, it says that even though he keeps at it, even though he gives all these opportunities, many people will still not repent. They still won't turn. And the chapter doesn't say why, but I want us to just for a second consider why in our modern age some people might not repent. I think one reason is that we resent having to choose to turn to God. Like we, we just want to we just, we just believe, man, there's just got to be a way that I can make it in, right? There's got to be a way for me to get the credit for that. To put salvation in our own hands, to say, no, it's because I was a good person. Or just saying, like, no, it's because I come from a family of good people. But God warns that this is a temptation where we start to double down and harden our hearts. And it, 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 it's just rooted in pride. And Jesus says, no, don't do that. Soften your heart. Move towards me in repentance. I think another reason, another reason that we, we don't repent is that uh, repenting requires the vulnerability of admitting that we're wrong. I mean, to admit that you're wrong, to admit that you're a sinner, to admit that your mind and that your heart is tainted by sin, I mean, that requires a certain level of, of self-reflection and honesty and vulnerability that a lot of us are uncomfortable with. Especially in our day and age, because when people do wrong, the dynamic of our culture is we say, let's cancel it. Let's cancel them. That's, that's, you know what that is? That's all atonement. You got to atone for your sins, but no forgiveness. You have to pay for your sins. That's what the culture says. You have to pay for your sins with no hope of ever being forgiven. Only punishment and exile, no mercy and grace. And the reason that our culture gravitates towards this is because if we admit that we ourselves are wrong, then we start to think, man, maybe we don't deserve to experience love. Maybe we don't deserve mercy. This is why the church, above all, needs to be a place where not only we commit that we are wrong, but we also can admit that we need to be accountable to one another to help each other grow and, and cling to Christ. But we're not curmudgeons about it because we are also people who've received grace, and that warms our heart, keeps us humble helps us remember that we're not better than other people because it's all by grace. And that's the beauty of Jesus. That's the beauty of the gospel. Jesus offers us both atonement and forgiveness. And we must be a community that lives as though that is true. The church must be a community that lives as though that is true. So on the one hand, we recognize, man, we're just a community of sinners. And we must be a safe place for sinners to repent. 
And for those who do repent, we need to realize that repenting exposes areas that we need to grow. And so we help each other grow. And we also know that forgiveness from God isn't just allowance to do whatever we want. No, forgiveness and repentance says, look, I'm going to be honest of the fact that I'm a mess. And I'm going to allow God to heal what is broken. I'm going to allow God to use others to heal what is broken, to straighten what is crooked and to make new what is ugly in me. Recently, I heard about a woman in our church who remarked to this other group that she was talking to, uh, who remarked that this is the first faith community, the first church that she's ever been a part of where um, after being months here, she's like, I just, just, people here, they just, they don't talk about other people behind their back. They don't, they don't gossip about each other. And without skipping a beat, another woman blurted out, she's like, well, that's because we all know that we're a mess. Like, nobody's hiding it. And I love that. I love how she put that because that's what the church is. That's what the church should be. Like, it's less like a museum of saints and more like a hospital of sinners where we're all sick and we all know we need help. The last two bowls is where the final judgment comes down. Verses 12 through 21. The sixth bowl is not so much a picture of judgment in and of itself, but it's more a picture of preparation for the seventh bowl. And in verse 13, the dragon, the first beast, and the false prophet that we saw in chapters 12 and 13, they, they send out these demonic spirits that call together the forces of, of the world, the dark forces of the world to fight against God and his people. And all of that leads to the seventh bowl where cosmic judgment finally comes down, where God's wrath finally is fully poured out across the earth. That's when the history of this world comes to a close and the rulers and ways of this world, they finally drain the cup of the wine of the fury of God's wrath, as the chapter tells us. So the seventh bowl is the climactic final judgment that finally comes down. And what we see, because it took so long to get there, is God's justice, his justice is on a long leash. There's restraint there. He's patient. He's patient, but he's coming. There's time to repent today, but there might not be time tomorrow. Verse 15 says it will come like a thief in the night when you don't even expect it. Verse 17 says the final judgment is decisive. It's final. It's done. And so here's how we're to see this. The plagues in the first five bowls are his way of waiting on us, his way of softening our hearts to turn towards him. But know, know that they will eventually lead to a final day of judgment. The beasts, the dragon, and all those who align with them and go along with their systems of living will ultimately be defeated and destroyed in the end. But with Christ, those with soft hearts of repentance will be with the Lamb, singing songs of freedom and grace around the glass sea. See, these two chapters, they're a gift to us. They're a reminder to us, not just of God's holy justice and wrath, but his patience and endurance with us. 
They reveal that suffering and pain can lead us to either having a hardened heart that runs away from God or having a softened heart that runs deeper and deeper into the presence of God through Jesus. And so I want us to allow this passage, allow these chapters to lead you to a soft heart, to self-examine and ask, man, is there any darkness in me leading me away from Jesus? And to be thankful for that prompting of the Spirit in our hearts and to, in faith, turn back to Jesus. It's no mistake that this closing vision of judgment in Revelation is a clear echo of the Exodus story with the song of Moses and the plagues and the bowls of the wrath. The point, I think, is for readers like us to make the connection that Jesus, he came to lead an exodus and a deliverance too. While Moses was the great prophet of God who spoke on God's behalf, Jesus is the greater prophet who not only brought the whole truth, but he is the truth. While Moses was God's law giver, in a sense, through the Ten Commandments, Jesus is the truer and greater one because he's the law fulfiller. Moses was a mediator who stood in the gap between God and his people, but Jesus, he's the greater mediator who paid the ransom for our sins with his own blood to reconcile us with God. He's the greater deliverer in that his exodus was a spiritual exodus, far more important than the great escape from Egypt. And Jesus, we have a greatest escape from death into life. Moses' exodus was possible because God's wrath came down upon Pharaoh's firstborn son. But Jesus' exodus was possible because God's wrath came down on God's own son. The Lamb of God who takes away the sins of the world. The exodus of Jesus Christ, the Lamb of God, is the greatest exodus, the greatest deliverance in human history. Out of captivity, from death to life, out of captivity from sin into freedom. The heart of Christianity is found in the mercy that is only found in Jesus Christ. The one who does so much more than just make you a better human on the outside, but he entirely makes us new, remade from the inside out. That only happens through Christ. Thank you for listening to the King's Cross Church Podcast. We'd like to encourage listeners to be part of a local church gathering. If you're ever in the Orange County, California area, we'd love it if you'd come by and visit on a Sunday morning. For meeting times and locations or any other information about us, please visit kx.church. There's no .com in that, just kx.church. Thanks again for listening.